Have thirty years dimmed the memory of music in Clark's aunt? What will happen if it's awakened? Willa Cather, today on the Classic Tales podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales podcast. Thank you for listening. The vintage episodes of the Classic Tales podcast just keep coming. How do you like them? Are you looking for more? Please let us know by going to classictalesaudiobooks.com. Pick up an audiobook, become a supporter, leave a review, or send us an email. Please let us know if you'd like more. Monday, we'll have Theodore Dreiser's incredible story, The Lost Phoebe, and on Wednesday, Poe's The Pit and the Pendulum. Believe it or not, when the episode of The Pit and the Pendulum was originally released, 16 years ago, the Classic Tales podcast was the number three podcast in all of iTunes. Not just fiction, but in all podcasts. In between This American Life and Car Talk. Things have changed, and I'm glad we've kept up, to some extent. If you'd like more vintage episodes, head on over to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and let us know one way or another. And thanks for your support. Today's story is about a gifted musician who fell in love and eloped to the frontier, forsaking her promising career as a professional musician. It's interesting to think of this time when her life was wholly unconnected. Talk about off the grid. No internet, of course. No television, movies, or even a band concert. Hymns in church. That's entertainment. Beautifully written by the great Willa Cather, a Wagner matinee takes us to a simpler time while still capturing much of the darker complexities we don't want to talk about. And now, a Wagner matinee by Willa Cather. I received one morning a letter written in pale ink on glassy, blue-lined notepaper and bearing the postmark of a little Nebraska village. This communication, worn and rubbed, looking as though it had been carried for some days in a coat pocket that was none too clean, was from my Uncle Howard and informed me that his wife had been left a small legacy by a bachelor relative who had recently died and that it would be necessary for her to go to Boston to attend the settling of the estate. He requested me to meet her at the station and render her whatever services might be necessary. On examining the date indicated as that of her arrival, I found it no later than tomorrow. He had characteristically delayed writing until, had I been away from home for a day, I must have missed the good woman altogether. The name of my Aunt Georgiana called up not alone her own figure, at once pathetic and grotesque, but opened before my feet a gulf of recollection so wide and deep that, as the letter dropped from my hand, I felt suddenly a stranger to all the present conditions of my existence, wholly ill at ease and out of place amid the familiar surroundings of my study. I became, in short, the gangling farm boy my aunt had known, scourged with chillblains and bashfulness, my hands cracked and sore from corn husking. I felt the knuckles of my thumb tentatively, 
as though they were raw again. I sat again before her parlor organ, fumbling the scales with my stiff red hands, while she, beside me, made canvas mittens for the huskers. The next morning, after preparing my landlady somewhat, I set out for the station. When the train arrived, I had some difficulty in finding my aunt. She was the last of the passengers to alight, and it was not until I got her into the carriage that she seemed really to recognize me. She had come all the way in a day coach. Her linen duster had become black with soot, and her black bonnet gray with dust during the journey. When we arrived at my boarding house, the landlady put her to bed at once, and I did not see her again until the next morning. Whatever shock Mrs. Springer experienced at my aunt's appearance, she considerately concealed. As for myself, I saw my aunt's misshapen figure with that feeling of awe and respect with which we behold explorers who have left their ears and fingers north of Franz Josef Land, or their health somewhere along the upper Congo. My Aunt Georgiana had been a music teacher at the Boston Conservatory, somewhere back in the latter sixties. One summer, while visiting in the little village among the green mountains where her ancestors had dwelt for generations, she had kindled the callow fancy of the most idle and shiftless of all the village lads, and had conceived for this Howard Carpenter one of those extravagant passions which a handsome country boy of twenty-one sometimes inspires in an angular, spectacled woman of thirty. When she returned to her duties in Boston, Howard followed her, and the upshot of this inexplicable infatuation was that she eloped with him, eluding the reproaches of her family and the criticisms of her friends by going with him to the Nebraska frontier. Carpenter, who of course had no money, had taken a homestead in Red Willow County, fifty miles from the railroad. There, they had measured off their quarter section themselves by driving across the prairie in a wagon, to the wheel of which they had tied a red cotton handkerchief and counting off its revolutions. They built a dugout in the red hillside, one of those cave dwellings whose inmates so often reverted to primitive conditions. Their water they got from the lagoons where the buffalo drank, and their slender stock of provisions was always at the mercy of bands of roving Indians. For thirty years, my aunt had not been further than fifty miles from the homestead. But Mrs. Springer knew nothing of all this, and must have been considerably shocked at what was left of my kinswoman. Beneath the soiled linen duster, which, on her arrival, was the most conspicuous feature of her costume, she wore a black stuffed dress, whose ornamentation showed that she had surrendered herself unquestioningly into the hands of a country dressmaker. My poor aunt's figure, however, would have presented astonishing difficulties to any dressmaker. Originally stooped, her shoulders were now almost bent together over her sunken chest. She wore no stays, and her gown, which trailed unevenly behind, rose in a sort of peak over her abdomen. She wore ill-fitting false teeth, and her skin was as yellow as a Mongolian's, from constant exposure to a pitiless wind, and to the alkaline water, which hardens the most transparent cuticle into a sort of flexible leather. I owed to this woman most of the good that ever came my way in my boyhood, and had a reverential affection for her 
During the years when I was riding herd for my uncle, my aunt, after cooking the three meals, the first of which was ready at six o'clock in the morning, and putting the six children to bed, would often stand until midnight at her ironing board, with me at the kitchen table beside her, hearing me recite Latin declensions and conjugations, gently shaking me when my drowsy head sank over a page of irregular verbs. It was to her, at her ironing or mending, that I read my first Shakespeare, and her old textbook on mythology was the first that ever came into my empty hands. She taught me my scales and exercises, too, on the little parlor organ, which her husband had bought her after fifteen years, during which she had not so much as seen any instrument, but an accordion that belonged to one of the Norwegian farmhands. She would sit beside me by the hour, darning and counting, while I struggled with the joyous farmer. But she seldom talked to me about music, and I understand why. She was a pious woman. She had the consolations of religion, and, to her at least, her martyrdom was not wholly sordid. Once, when I had been doggedly beating out some easy passages from an old score of Euranthe I had found among her music books, she came up to me, and putting her hands over my eyes, gently drew my head back upon her shoulder, saying tremulously, Don't love it so well, Clark, or it may be taken from you. Oh, dear boy, pray that whatever your sacrifice may be, it be not that. When my aunt appeared on the morning after her arrival, she was still in a semi-somnambulant state. She seemed not to realize that she was in the city where she had spent her youth, the place longed for hungrily half a lifetime. She had been so wretchedly train-sick throughout the journey that she had no recollection of anything but her discomfort and to all intents and purposes, there were but a few hours of nightmare between the farm in Red Willow County and my study on Newbury Street. I had planned a little pleasure for her that afternoon, to repay her for some of the glorious moments she had given me when we used to milk together in the straw-thatched cowshed, and she, because I was more than usually tired, or because her husband had spoken sharply to me, would tell me of the splendid performance of the Huguenot, she had seen in Paris, in her youth. At two o'clock the symphony orchestra was to give a Wagner program, and I intended to take my aunt, though, as I conversed with her, I grew doubtful about her enjoyment of it. Indeed, for her own sake, I could only wish her taste for such things quite dead, and the long struggle mercifully ended at last. I suggested our visiting the conservatory and the common before lunch but she seemed altogether too timid to wish to venture out. She questioned me absently about various changes in the city, but she was chiefly concerned that she had forgotten to leave instructions about feeding half-skimmed milk to a certain weakling calf. Old Maggie's calf, you know, Clark, she explained, evidently having forgotten how long I had been away. She was further troubled because she had neglected to tell her daughter about the freshly opened kit of mackerel in the cellar, which would spoil if it were not used directly. I had asked her whether she had heard any of the Wagnerian operas, and found that she had not. Though she was perfectly familiar with their respective situations, and at once possessed the piano score of the Flying Dutchman, I began to think it would have been best, 
to get her back to Red Willow County without waking her, and regretted having suggested the concert. From the time we entered the concert hall, however, she was a trifle less passive and inert, and for the first time seemed to perceive her surroundings. I had felt some trepidation lest she might become aware of the absurdities of her attire, or might experience some painful embarrassment at stepping suddenly into the world to which she had been dead for a quarter of a century. But again I found how superficially I had judged her. She sat, looking about her with eyes as impersonal, almost as stony, as those with which the granite Ramses in a museum watches the froth and fret that ebbs and flows about his pedestal, separated from it by the lonely stretch of centuries. I have seen this same aloofness in old miners, who drift into the Brown Hotel at Denver, their pockets full of bullion, their linen soiled, their haggard faces unshaven, standing in the thronged corridors as solitary as though they were still in a frozen camp on the Yukon, conscious that certain experiences have isolated them from their fellows by a gulf no haberdasher could bridge. We sat at the extreme left of the first balcony, facing the arch of our own and the balcony above us, veritable hanging gardens, brilliant as tulip beds. The matinee audience was made up chiefly of women. One lost the contour of faces and figures, indeed any effective line whatever, and there was only the color of bodices past counting, the shimmer of fabrics, soft and firm, silky and sheer, red, mauve, pink, blue, lilac, purple, ecru, rose, yellow, cream, and white, all the colors that an impressionist finds in a sunlit landscape, with here and there the dead shadow of a frock coat. My Aunt Georgiana regarded them as though they had been so many daubs of tube paint on a palette. When the musicians came out and took their places, she gave a little stir of anticipation and looked with quickening interest down over the rail at that invariable grouping, perhaps the first wholly familiar thing that had greeted her eye since she had left old Maggie and her weakling calf. I could feel how all those details sank into her soul, for I had not forgotten how they had sunk into mine when I came fresh from plowing forever and forever between green aisles of corn, where, as in a treadmill, one might walk from daybreak to dusk without perceiving a shadow of change. The clean profiles of the musicians, the gloss of their linen, the dull black of their coats, the beloved shapes of the instruments, the patches of yellow light thrown by the green-shaded lamps on the smooth, varnished bellies of the cellos and the bass viols in the rear, the restless, wind-tossed forest of fiddle-necks and bows. I recalled how, in the first orchestra I had ever heard, those long bow-strokes seemed to draw the heart out of me, as a conjurer's stick reels out yards of paper ribbon from a hat. The first number was the Townhauser Overture. When the horns drew out the first strain of the Pilgrim's Chorus, my Aunt Georgiana clutched my coat-sleeve. Then it was. I first realized that for her this broke a silence of thirty years, the inconceivable silence of the plains. With the battle between the two motives, 
with the frenzy of the Venusberg theme and its ripping of strings, there came to me an overwhelming sense of the waste and wear we are so powerless to combat. And I saw again the tall, naked house on the prairie, black and grim as a wooden fortress, the black pond where I had learned to swim, its margin pitted with sun-dried cattle tracks, the rain-gullied clay banks about the naked house, the four dwarfash seedlings where the dishcloths were always hung to dry before the kitchen door. The world there was the flat world of the ancients. To the east, a cornfield that stretched to daybreak. To the west, a corral that reached to sunset. Between this, the conquests of peace, dearer bought than those of war. The overture closed. My aunt released my coat sleeve, but she said nothing. She sat staring at the orchestra through a dullness of thirty years, through the films made little by little by each of the 365 days in every one of them. What, I wondered, did she get from it? She had been a good pianist in her day, I knew, and her musical education had been broader than that of most music teachers of a quarter of a century ago. She had often told me of Mozart's operas and Meyerbeer's, and I could remember hearing her sing, years ago, certain melodies of Verdi's. When I had fallen ill with a fever in her house, she used to sit by my cot in the evening, when the cool night wind blew in through the faded mosquito netting tacked over the window, and I lay watching a certain bright star that burned red above the cornfield, and sang... Home to our mountains, oh, let us return, in a way fit to break the heart of a Vermont boy near dead of homesickness already. I watched her closely through the prelude to Tristan and Isolde, trying vainly to conjecture what that seething turmoil of strings and winds might mean to her. But she sat, mutely staring at the violin bows that drove obliquely downward, like the pelting streaks of rain in a summer shower. Had this music any message for her? Had she enough left to at all comprehend this power which had kindled the world since she had left it? I was in a fever of curiosity. But Aunt Georgiana sat silent upon her peak in Darien. She preserved this utter immobility throughout the number from the Flying Dutchman though her fingers worked mechanically upon her black dress, as though, of themselves, they were recalling the piano score they had once played. Poor old hands. They had been stretched and twisted into mere tentacles, to hold and lift and knead with. The palms unduly swollen, the fingers bent and knotted, on one of them a thin, worn band that had once been a wedding ring. As I pressed and gently quieted one of those groping hands, I remembered with quivering eyelids their services for me in other days. Soon after the tenor began the prize song, I heard a quick-drawn breath and turned to my aunt. Her eyes were closed, but the tears were glistening on her cheeks. And I think in a moment more, they were in my eyes as well. It never really died then. The soul 
that can suffer so excruciatingly and so interminably. It withers to the outward eye only, like that strange moss which can lie on a dusty shelf half a century, and yet, if placed in water, grows green again. She wept so, throughout the development and elaboration of the melody. During the intermission before the second half of the concert, I questioned my aunt and found that the prize song was not new to her. Some years before, there had drifted to the farm in Red Willow County a young German, a tramp cowpuncher, who had sung the chorus at Bayreuth when he was a boy, along with the other peasant boys and girls. Of a Sunday morning, he used to sit on his gingham-sheeted bed in the hand's bedroom which opened off the kitchen, cleaning the leather of his boots and saddle, singing the prize song, while my aunt went about her work in the kitchen. She had hovered about him until she had prevailed upon him to join the country church, though his sole fitness for this step, insofar as I could gather, lay in his boyish face and his possession of this divine melody. Shortly afterward he had gone to town on the 4th of July, been drunk for several days, lost his money at a faro table, ridden a saddled Texan steer on a bet, and disappeared with a fractured collarbone. All this my aunt told me huskily, wanderingly, as though she were talking in the weak lapses of illness. Well, we have come to better things than the old Trovatore, at any rate, Aunt Georgie, I queried, with a well-meant effort at jocularity. Her lip quivered, and she hastily put a handkerchief up to her mouth. From behind it, she murmured, And you have been hearing this ever since you left me, Clark? Her question was the gentlest and saddest of reproaches. The second half of the program consisted of four numbers from The Ring and closed with Siegfried's funeral march. My aunt wept quietly, but almost continuously, as the shallow vessel overflows in a rainstorm. From time to time her dim eyes looked up at the lights which studded the ceiling, burning softly under their dull glass globes. Doubtless they were stars, in truth, to her. I was still perplexed as to what measure of musical comprehension was left to her. She, who had heard nothing but the singing of gospel hymns at Methodist services in the square-framed schoolhouse on Section 13 for so many years. I was wholly unable to gauge how much of it had been dissolved in soap suds, or worked into bread, or milked into the bottom of a pail. The deluge of sound poured on and on. I never knew what she found in the shining current of it. I never knew how far it bore her, or past what happy islands. From the trembling of her face, I could well believe that before the last numbers she had been carried out where the myriad graves are, into the gray, nameless burying grounds of the sea, or into some world of death, vaster yet, where, from the beginning of the world, hope has lain down with hope, and dream with dream, and, renouncing, slept. The concert was over. The people filed out of the hall, chattering and laughing, glad to relax and find the living level again. But my kinswoman made no effort to rise. The harpist slipped its green felt cover over his instrument 
The flute players shook the water from their mouthpieces. The men of the orchestra went out one by one, leaving the stage to the chairs and music stands, empty as a winter cornfield. I spoke to my aunt. She burst into tears and sobbed pleadingly, I don't want to go, Clark. I don't want to go. I understood. For her, just outside the door of the concert hall, lay the black pond with the cattle-tracked bluffs, the tall, unpainted house with weather-curled boards, naked as a tower, the crook-backed ash seedlings where the dishcloths hung to dry, the gaunt, molting turkeys picking up refuse about the kitchen door. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of A Wagner Matinee by Willa Cather. If you like this story, you may also enjoy Great Expectations by Charles Dickens and God Sees the Truth But Waits by Leo Tolstoy. You can find these and other Classic Tales audiobooks at our website, classictalesaudiobooks.com. And thanks for pitching in. And keep an eye open for the vintage episodes coming on Monday and Wednesday. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me next time and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. <laughs>